You may have a seat. That's our scripture reading for today, Proverbs chapter 2. We're in a series called Pitfalls, uh, walk, walking through the book of Proverbs this summer. Uh, and I can't start off my sermon without addressing the dads in the room. I know we've said Happy Father's Day multiple uh, times, but I want to address just different groups of people in the room, uh, just individually. First, to the physical fathers in the room that many times you may come to church on Father's Day and and dread it for various reasons, because Father's Day, a lot of the times, is when we hear about how much more we could be doing uh, as fathers and time we could be investing, ways we could be leading our family spiritually. But I simply want to remind you of the importance of your role as dad and remind you that the explanation and the relationship that God the Father chooses to relate to us in is Father, that it's important So our calling as father is vital to the health and the flourishing of our families and so many different areas. So don't forget the ground, the first place of your love, effort, training, investment is your kids and your family. You're important. You matter. Second is to the spiritual fathers that the primary role or illustration in the New Testament for the New Testament church is family. And families are made up of dads, moms, brothers, and sisters. That not only are you vitally important to your family, but you are vitally important to this church family. That you are valuable in this community to love, to serve, to protect, and to help this community flourish in all of its ways as the not-so-perfect-yet-faithful family right where we're planted, made up of broken yet beautiful people. And the last group is to those who may be hurting today for various reasons. Hurting because you long to be a father and yet are not. Hurting because you have lost a child and it doesn't hit you the same way that it hits the mom, but It still hurts and you still have to process that emotion or whatever it may be. Maybe you're hurting because your earthly father is no longer with you and you miss him today. Or maybe your earthly father wasn't the best example of a father. May we just all be reminded no matter how good or fallen short, our example of Father was on this earth or is on this earth. It is no comparison to the perfection of our perfect heavenly Father. And He has displayed His love to us through His Son on the cross, Jesus. And the promise of our God all throughout the Scriptures is not that we would never experience pain, but in the midst of every season, He is with us. And He is with us today. He's with you today in your celebration or your sorrow. So in light of that, the only thing I know to do is to pray. So together, can we pray together uh, and just thank God for uh, who he is and how he moves in our world. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are as the perfect, purest Father. We thank you for good earthly fathers who image you. And we thank you for your grace and your presence in the midst of our pain for various reasons. 
And so many of us fall short in our examples of being good fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters. But may your grace be made all more aware to us in our shortcomings. And may you make your grace and your love tangible to us today through our church family. In Christ's name, amen. If you have a copy of your scriptures, Proverbs chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Our series is titled Pitfalls, looking at the book of Proverbs. And if you simply, like I do on a regular basis, uh, open up Google and type a word in and hit define, because uh, I need to know what words mean a lot of times. And a lot of times my wife reminds me, I don't think you know what that word means. Uh, but the word pitfall, by definition, if you just simply do a Google search, is this, a hidden or unexpected danger or difficulty. And probably many of us have stories in our lives where things happened out of the blue and they were unexpected. Or we had a difficulty that we didn't see coming. Like when I was eight years old, uh, uh, my birthday's in March, and so it's really close to spring break. And so through my elementary, latter elementary years, my parents would allow about five to eight of my closest friends come over, stay the night uh, of the kickoff of spring break for my birthday party, a sleepover. I know there's not as common anymore, uh, but we had a sleepover about eight of my friends and uh, the, we stayed up all night the, on a Friday night and Saturday morning before their parents came to pick them up, um, we played a football game in my front yard. My dad was QB and I was on the offensive team at the time and uh, we, were, we were just playing a pickup game before the parents came and picked up their kids and uh, we were just running every which direction with no purpose at all, but just saying, I'm open, I'm open, pass me the ball. And I just decided to outrun everybody else and go to the end zone. That's all I knew to, knew to do. So my dad tosses me the ball, throws it to me. I catch it, turn around, and out of nowhere, Highline Pole was standing in my way. And I smacked it with my forehead. It was unexpected. It was a difficulty that I did not see coming. And my dad, like any good dad, would have jerked me out of the way if he would have known that that pass would have led to that position for a variety of reasons. One, so I wouldn't have a concussion. Two, because that was the touchdown marker and we would have scored if I wouldn't have ran into it. But in much of life, there's things that we don't see coming. There's outcomes that we can't predict and we wish we knew what would happen if we made this decision versus that. But too often than not in our life, we say like, let's just see what happens. And there are times where that's super appropriate. There are times where let's just see what happens is totally okay approach. Like yesterday when I was playing golf, I didn't know what most clubs were going to do. But I said, let's just see what happens. And that was okay on the golf course. But what's okay on the golf course is not always the best way to make decisions in our lives. Like let's just see what happens is not the best decision. So much of the time we wish we just knew the outcome. We wish we just had the wisdom it was to navigate the difficulties of life. And what the book of Proverbs is really all about is helping a father give wisdom to a son to know how to navigate and make decisions in his life in the face of these difficulties. It's helping him avoid the pits of life, the pitfalls, the unexpected, unforeseen difficulties and dangers. Last week, Kevin kicked us off and taught through all of chapter 1 in the book of Proverbs, and he called it the introduction, which is 
100% accurate. And if Proverbs chapter 1 is the introduction, Proverbs chapter 2 is more like the table of contents. Because in Proverbs chapter 2, there's all these connective tissues between uh, different verses and the rest of the book, if it will. Because it, car- it covers a variety of topics. But with that in mind, I want to just do two quick notes before we dive into the verses, more specifically about the book of Proverbs as a whole. Two things about the contents of Proverbs. Since Proverbs chapter 2 is like the table of contents, here's two things about Proverbs as a whole. Number one is Proverbs is not a morality book. It's not a morality book. Because if Proverbs was a morality book about just making the right choice versus the wrong choice, it would lead us to one of two things. It would either lead you and I to arrogance or guilt. If it was a book just about morality, it would either lead you to arrogance or guilt. Arrogance, because when we cover certain topics through the book of Proverbs, just working through it, you're like, I'm doing that right. I'm crushing it. I'm amazing. I'm listening to the Father, and, and I'm great at it. Or number two, to guilt. I don't measure up. I've got more work to do. Why can I not get this right? But if Proverbs is not a book about morality, what is it? Number two, Proverbs is about Jesus. Proverbs is about Jesus. In uh, 2 Timothy, Paul writes that all Scripture is from the lungs of God. God breathed. God wrote Proverbs like he wrote the rest of the Bible. But Jesus also tells us in Luke 24 that All the Old Testament was proclaiming about him. So that means Proverbs is about Jesus. But where in the world is Jesus in the book of Proverbs? Let's just look for him in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. My son, stop there, you found him. (laughs) But seriously, Jesus is the answer and meaning to all of life. Jesus is the wisdom of Proverbs, first and foremost. That he is the wisdom. Kevin taught us last week that understanding or knowledge is the surface level of uh, life and information. That just having the knowledge about something is the bare minimum. But wisdom is knowing what to do with that knowledge. That Jesus is the wisdom of Proverbs because he is how to live life. He is also, the second, he is also the son who perfectly listened to the father. If Proverbs is a book written from a father to a son, Jesus is that son who perfectly obeyed his father at every nook and cranny. At every path, he avoided the pit. He is the perfectly obedient son to his father. So in light of that, let's dive in. Proverbs 2 one, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your hearts to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. In these first five verses of chapter 2, there are two key words that if you miss them, you'll miss the point. And it's two simple words, if and then. 
The word if is mentioned in verse 1, verse 3, and verse 4. And then the word then is mentioned in verse 5. And in one verse we haven't read yet, verse 9. But I want you to notice that connected to all these ifs are actions that are pointed towards something specific. Like look at verse 1. My son, if you receive my words, you're receiving the words and treasure up my commandments with you. The word receive is like receiving a paycheck. The literal meaning is to take in, like you receive a package from UPS. You're receiving it. The word treasure is literally means to guard something valuable. And notice what this father says to this son. He says, if you receive like a paycheck my words and treasure up like a valuable, precious things, my commandments with you. And then he continues on verse two, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. The word making literally means to put in proper position in order to receive. Making your ears ready to listen. All the parents are like, man, I've said this a thousand times to my kids. Like, pay attention. You're not listening to me. And you know when someone's not listening to you. They don't make eye contact or they don't look like they're soaking it in. Like, you you get when somebody's not paying attention. And this father says, son, make your ears ready to listen. And incline your heart. That word incline literally means to open up. Open up your heart for understanding. This father is telling this son, not only put your ears in a position where you're ready to listen, but open up your heart ready to receive what I'm about to say to you. Incline your heart to my understanding that you may get wisdom and understanding. And he says this in verse 3, if you call out, if you summon my insight... If you raise your voice, if you want it, just in these first three verses, this father has used countless words and countless descriptors to receive, treasure, make, incline, call out, raise. He said all these different words basically to ask his son one question, do you really want it? Do you desire it? And if that hasn't been clear enough yet, Look at verse 4. If you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure, do you want it? Son, do you want this? Is the question this father is desiring to get across to his son in these first four verses. Seek it like silver. Search for it like hidden treasure that you know that it's there, but you just don't know where it is. He says, if you do all these things, verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. It's like what Jesus himself says, for those who knock and seek, they'll find it. If you're looking for it, you'll find it. Because the first thing, if you're taking notes, write this down. The first thing, the fear of the Lord is first recognizing our need. The fear of the Lord is first recognizing our need because what this father wants this son to understand in the midst of this is that not only does he need to want it, but all the words that he used, he he has to recognize that he has a lack, that he doesn't have all the answers, that he doesn't have the 
the character or the knowledge or the wisdom to navigate life and avoid all the pits, the unexpected dangers and difficulties that life is going to throw at him on his own. Contrary to our culture and popular belief, you do you is probably not the best advice. Because the reality is, is we need to recognize our need. Kevin taught us last week in Proverbs chapter 1 that the fear of the Lord is the starting place for all of our relationships with the Lord. We recognize who He is and the fact that who He is points to the fact that we're not enough on our own. Because not only do we need to recognize our need, but continue on in Proverbs 2 verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of His saints. So notice that the the Lord gives wisdom from His mouth and understanding, and He gives it to those who are seeking for it. So the second thing, if you're taking notes, write this down. The fear of the Lord is second, recognizing our source. That we have a need... But there's also a source. The flow of thought in this chapter in Proverbs chapter 2 is that the Lord will forge and shape our character enough so that we can actually make the right decision when faced with difficulty. Just a warning right here for this illustration coming next. For all those that did not think I was a nerd, your, your life is about to be done. In Star Wars 2, there it is, so... Uh, in the opening minutes of the movie in Star Wars 2, and now they're, they're lesser quality films than 4, 5, 6, but we won't get into all that right now. But in Star Wars 2, Obi-Wan and Anakin are searching for this bounty hunter that has attacked Padme. And uh, they're searching, and their search has led them to this bar type, this space bar thing, whatever this is. And uh, Obi-Wan sends Anakin off in another direction to go and look for this bounty hunter and Obi-Wan walks up to the bar and he orders a drink and this strangely looking character uh, walks up to him and kind of slides into the bar and he says, hey, you want to buy some death sticks? That's exactly what he says. That's my best impersonation. I won't do that again, I promise. Uh, But he says, hey, you want to buy some death sticks? And Obi-Wan simply waves his hand and says, you don't want to sell me any death sticks. He says, I don't want to sell you any death sticks. He says, you want to go home and rethink your life. And he says, I want to go home and rethink my life. And then he walks away. The simple fact is that the Jedi mind trick works on those who are weak of mind and character. That's what Obi-Wan will explain to Anakin later on. That it works on those who are weak of mind and character. And the goal for all of us and the want for all of us in our life is to be able to discern who has our best intention and who does not have our best intention at heart. To be able, we wish we could simply wave our hand and just say, I'm discerning this character right now in this moment. I can make the right choice with no temptation, no regret, no second thought. But we don't have that just like out of the blue. But the goal in Proverbs and what the father wants from his son in Proverbs, the point, if you will, is to help forge that moral character firmly enough in Christ that in those situations that the son will make the right choice. That he'll walk and navigate through life and be able to pinpoint the man who's trying to sell him death sticks and say, no, I'm not doing that. 
You don't even want to do that. You want to go home and rethink your life. Because he says this, verse 9, continues on. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. He says, after you understand the fear of the Lord, after you get it, that you recognize your need and the source for wisdom and you're seeking it like silver, then, then you will understand righteousness then you will understand what justice really looks like. Then you will understand every good path. Verse 10, For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil. And he's getting ready to introduce two metaphors of evil that have real life like illustrations. And this is what he says. From the men of perverted speech who forsake the path of uprightness to walk in the way of darkness. We're going to stop there for a moment. Because what this father wants is first, he introduces the first evil character, if you will. The first tempter. The man of perverted speech. Because this man is the destix dealer. He's got a Silver tongue. He makes his way seem like the right way and tempts others in that way. And he continues on, verse 14. Who rejoice in doing evil, delight in the perversiveness of evil. Verse 15. Men whose paths are crooked and whose ways are devi- who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman. That's the second character. From the adulteress with her smooth words who forsake the companion of her youth, forget the covenant with her God, for her house sinks down to death, her path to the pardon. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. These two characters, the men of perverted speech, and then what the ESV renders, forbidden woman. They're very similar in their ways. Notice the descriptors. They both use words to justify their way of life, and neither really come back. They're both devious in their ways. Just a a sidebar on this rendering of forbidden woman, what you're going to notice if you read through Proverbs is that there's all these different, that women are portrayed as wisdom and of of folly or of of temptation, both and, that this father is using this metaphor of a real life example of these two different ways. And there's different words that are used in this regard, of the negative of the metaphor. There's what is called the strange woman or the adulterous woman, the foreign woman, the wayward woman. And different translations render these two Hebrew words differently. But this word is zahar or strange or what the ESV ESV calls forbidden. And this is unlikely that this is indicating an Israelite woman, but rather this is a individual who is so willingly to operate outside the moral, legal, customary bounds of the day. Because no illustration is needed to look at these verses. They're elaborate, they're uh, imagery rendering all on their own. Listen to them. Verse 16 again. This is what wisdom protects you from. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, or the strange woman is another way, if you have a footnote in your Bible. 
from the adulteress with her smooth words who forsakes the companion of her youth, who's left her husband, basically is what that says. And this writer of the Proverbs renders leaving the companion of your youth in comparison to forgets the covenant with her God. In verse 18, here's the imagery language. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. What this is saying is is her path. Notice and remember verse 9 where it says what wisdom will do is lead you down every good path. But her path of the negative leads down to death and her her paths sink to the departed. And this word the departed is a difficult phrase in Hebrew but different translations render it. I'm just going to look at one, the CSV, which is a very literal translation of this word at least. It says this, for her house sinks down to death and her ways to the land of the departed spirits. Or as I love the paraphrase of the message translation of this verse, listen to this, I feel like it hits it home perfectly. Her whole way of life is doomed. Every step she takes brings her closer to hell. This father is trying to get in this imaginative language to his son to avoid both men and women who use words easily to justify their way of life away from morality, away from Christ, away from Jesus, away from God the Father, because their past, their way, leads to death. And ultimately, the reality of hell itself. But here's the beauty of this metaphor. Here's the beauty of this illustration from this father to this son. The father is meaning to use the son to teach him more about bad men and bad women. But reality is he's teaching him about sin itself. That sin, that is any time we as human beings define what is good for ourselves or for others apart from God. And what sin does in our lives when we read God's word and we have sin in our life, it'll do one of two things. It'll either be a rebuke or a warning against us and we will turn from that or sin will numb us and we'll learn to live with it. We'll be like the wayward strange woman whose paths are crooked and they sink slowly to death. Notice he doesn't say falls into death because we don't live our lives in such a way where we just kind of just haphazardly, oh, off the cliff, there we went. No, it's this sinks. It's one choice that leads to another choice that leads to another choice. And one day we wake up, we're not realizing where in the world, how did I get here? Her house sinks down to death. But Solomon writes to his son to protect, to guard, to direct, to guide him to repentance and not to be numbed and calloused to wake up, to open his eyes, to realize don't go with them in any way. Because the beauty of it is this. Look at the last three verses. Verse 20. And the, the reasoning behind this warning is this. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of righteousness for the upright will inhabit the land and those 
with integrity will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. The reality for all of us is that this is a rebuke. This is a correction. This is an opportunity to turn from the ways we have lived to Christ. Because the reality for all of us is if we're not dead, God's not done with us. That Jesus died not for a second chance that you've already used, but another chance. The point is, is we can't live in our own strength, but we have to depend on His power. The power that rose Christ from the dead. And the beauty of this Proverbs read through the lens of Jesus is we have a Savior who has walked the path, who has lived the life perfectly on our behalf because we could not keep to these commands. We have linked up with too many men of perverted speech and strange women of of sin, of just sinning in our lives. We're really good at it. We're really good at justifying ourselves. We are like the men of perverted speech. We make justifications for the way we live. But the good news is, is we have a Savior who avoided all the pits and says, walk my way. Because the rest of the Bible will tell us that, as Romans 3.10 says, none are righteous, no, not one. That none of us are good on our own, in our own strength of keeping to the words of righteousness. Christ himself would affirm this in Mark 10.18. It says, no one is good except God alone. That none of us are good on our own, but God sent Christ. He sent Jesus to be the good that we could not be. To walk and live the life we could not live. Because we all have imperfections. We all sin in our lives. We all make choices for our benefit and not the benefit of others. We all live this way. But the beauty in verses 20 through 22, I don't believe the key word is righteousness. Righteous. That's a wonderful word, but what the word that jumped out of me in verse 20 Solomon writes to his son, so that you will walk in the way of the good and keep. That word keep is literally an ongoing repetitive, uh, repetition word. Like keep on keeping on. Like keep doing what you're doing. It's not a one-time decision to, hey, walk the path of righteousness like it's a, a trail you walked that one time by your house and that was a good exercise, but I got my exercise in for the year and I'm good. No, what keep is, is it's an ongoing, daily, keep to the path. One theologian says a good definition for sin is missing the mark. Other Hebrew scholars say that it's, it could be of leaving the path. Because the path is an idiom used all throughout the Old Testament of choose the good path versus the bad path. Choose Christ or the, the good tree over the bad tree. Like It's all this, these choices in this regard. And what Solomon writes to his son in this regard, he says, keep on the right path. Because the third thing is, if you're taking notes, the fear of the Lord is third, recognizing it is ongoing. It's not a one and done decision because the reality is, is the fact is these words were written for our flourishing, not for shame or a guilt trip. These words were written to encourage us to keep following Christ, to keep on following the Lord. 
to recognize that we have a need because we have sin. That we're not enough on our own, but there's a source. Its name, His name is Jesus. That we are not righteous on our own, that we need His wisdom to navigate our lives. We need Him. So here's the question. As we begin to close, and we're going to sing one more song this morning as we respond. Where do you have a lack of wisdom in your life right now? I know with a room this size, this amount of people, that the reality is the life situations are vast. Where do you need wisdom? Where does it feel like that you have a lack in your life? For some of us, maybe you've never committed to following Jesus and this morning you can make that commitment to start following Jesus. We would love to introduce you to Him. To the Father who sent the Son to live the life we couldn't live, to walk the path that we could not walk, to lay it out for us. Where have you been not living in the fear of the Lord in your life? These are all questions that I desire you to ponder through this next song and even throughout this week. To recognize that the fear of the Lord is recognizing that we have a need, we have a lack in our life without Him. There's a source that is Jesus and to follow Jesus is ongoing. But more than that, during these, this next song, during this response time, we'd love to pray with you over any of these questions. But also, with this final thing, we depend not on our morality, not on our good choices, but on the grace of our Father in the midst of it. So I'd love to pray for us, and then you respond as you're feeling led. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for sending Jesus, your one and only Son, to walk the path that we could not walk on our own strength. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. May we learn and have the moral character forged within us that only comes from You to choose the good path where You're leading us in our lives. May we say yes to whatever Your Spirit's prompting us to now. In Christ's name, Amen. Would you stand and stand?